You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. You know, if you've been around labor relations for any length of time, you've probably heard the name of my guest today. Michael Latito is one of the premier labor attorneys in the nation and, as importantly, one of the nation's thought leaders on workplace policy. As a shareholder with the law firm Littler Mendelssohn, Mr. Latito strategically advises his clients and policymakers on what labor and employment law might become, not just what it is today. He provides counsel in all aspects of traditional labor relations, including matters arising under the National Labor Relations Act. In addition to having testified before the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate, as well as the National Labor Relations Board and the EEOC, Mr. Latito is co-chair of Littler's Workplace Policy Institute. Now, the Workplace Policy Institute partners with the employer community to engage in legislative and regulatory advocacy efforts on issues that impact our workplace. WPI provides clients with unique insights into local, state, and federal labor policy developments and works to affect workplace policies throughout the executive, legislative, and judicial branches of government. In that regard, The WPI does many things, including engaging with key policymakers in Congress, the administration, and relevant agencies, building coalitions with like-minded organizations to identify and respond to policy trends at the federal and state levels, understanding the effects of the most complex policy developments, addressing agency regulations and case decisions, as well as providing testimony before Congress and preparing amicus briefs for court cases, and that's just to name a few. Last but not least, through the Emma Coalition, which is a project Mr. Latito co-founded and named in honor of his granddaughter, he is at the vanguard in preparing American business and the American workforce for the future of work. The Emma Coalition, in cooperation with government and corporate entities, examines what skills the American workforce will need down the road and makes sure America and its people will remain competitive for the years to come. I give you all of this by way of background because in my view and that of many others across the country, there are very few who know labor policy as well as Michael Latito does. This is why I'm honored to have him come on to Labor Relations Radio and take time out of his schedule to spend close to an hour and talk about all the things that are going on. And I specifically had questions, as many people do, about what's happening with our gig economy. So here's Michael Latito. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Mr. Latito, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. How are you this morning? I'm very good, Peter. How are you? Good. So um, you are one of those individuals across the country that everybody knows his name. And in, at least in labor relations circles, no, in a good sense. It's um, so if anybody wants to know anything about labor policy and stuff like that, Michael Latito is the guy to go to. And so I was excited and honored that you'd come on to labor relations radio. 
Um, so you've been an attorney for a long time, right? Long, 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 long time, Peter. And so I, I do want to touch on that for a second, but you are um, part of Littler Mendelssohn and you run or you're, you co-run, I guess, I don't know the term for that, a uh, something called the Workplace Policy Institute. Could you tell us what that is? Uh, WPI uh, was formed about uh, 10 years ago. Um, and as the name suggests, it's our policy shop. Um, we have found that employers are very interested in having a voice on workplace policy, but they are absolutely petrified to do so because they are afraid of retaliation coming from a consumer, from their employees, from this, from that, on any position uh, that they take. And so we work principally through trade associations and putting together coalitions to give employers a voice on evolving policy issues. Uh, one of the other aspects is that employers are often left holding the bag when something is passed or enacted. Um, wouldn't it be nice to have a say in how that's going to be passed and how that's going to be enacted uh, so that the employers can you know, give some constructive comments ahead of time? So sometimes we file comments. Um, to NPRM. Sometimes um, we um, intervene directly with the um, uh, regulators. Sometimes uh, we uh, bring lawsuits like we did in the independent contractor case. Um, sometimes we work um, above the covers and sometimes we work you know, more quietly in talking to people, not only at the federal level, but also at the state level um, in order to do some things that are pretty constructive. Um, and it's interesting because uh, when we put together these coalitions, if people don't know us, uh, you'd expect the first question would be, uh, are you going to win? No, that's not it. The second question you expect that they would ask is, how much is it going to cost? No, that's not it. The very first question they all ask is, nobody will know we're, we're, we're participating, right? Because they're fearful. Uh, and I find this fear of retaliation extremely troubling um, just from a societal standpoint and WPI gives our clients a voice. The, the retaliation is um, whether there's social media campaigns or like shareholder actions, things like that. All of those kinds of things. And um, I think that uh, companies, corporations, especially public ones um, are becoming, whether they want to or not, uh, political animals and expected to play in a political space. Um, we're seeing that with the, the horror that's going on in, in Europe, for example. Um, you know, it would be very, very hard to be a company that says, no, we're going to continue to operate Russia. Uh, the SEC's comments the other day with respect to, you know, green initiatives and disclosures and diversity and inclusion. Um, you know, companies are being asked to take policy positions from their employees and being held accountable for that. Um, and that makes for a very, very difficult um set of options that are open to companies as to how they participate in that in those grand debates and you know, there are some companies that have said we don't want to do that at all and i think they found that even if they don't they have to this kind of leads to kind of a bigger question um but you're hitting on on certain themes of it we seem to be in a um era if you will where there is a lot of activism um whether you call it the cancel culture on the one side or shareholder actions, union campaigns. And I've been, so I've been around this 
the labor relations environment for since the Reagan era. Um, and I don't recall it ever being this way. Do you, is, do you find yourself that, you know, we're in a new era, so to speak? I think so. And it's very, very intense. Um, and the partisanship um, that uh, unfortunately divides our great country um, also applies to, you know, workplace issues. People feel very strongly about issues um, and they are absolutely thoroughly convinced that whatever their position is, it's right. Um, and the older I get, um, I, I've, I've come to realize almost everything is rather nuanced. Um, so I've become a little bit less strident than I have been in the past because I'm not always convinced that I'm so right um, because you want to be open and get some different points of view. Um, so I, I think that it is, it's a, it's a function of the times. Um, it's a function of the partisanship. And it's also a function that we have become a country of messaging and not a fact. The narrative. It's all about the message. It's yeah. all about the message. Um, and it's not about the fact. Um, and uh, it's, I think it's extraordinarily destructive. Yeah. It, um, so during the pandemic, I mean, it seemed to have been slowly building. It may have been well before the pandemic, but coming out of the pandemic, it just seems to have blown up, so to speak. Um, so that kind of brings me to my next question with the mm -hmm. National Labor Relations Board. Um, and I know you're involved with that from you know an advocacy standpoint. Have you seen, like I remember the Obama era and everybody saying the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And with the exception of, you know, there's a few major decisions that they did, joint employer and all that. Um, we seem to be like pedal to the metal right now with the current NLRB. Do you recall seeing that any time in the past, as, as interesting as it is now? Well, I think during President Obama's time, you know, we wrote the report um, that um, uh, Josh Altman's group uh, published, CDW, um, on how they reversed uh, 4,300 years of precedent in about five years under Mark Pierce's leadership as the, the chair of the board. Um, I never recall anything like that. I don't think any governmental agency has ever been that aggressive, um, perhaps in, in history of, you know, the fourth estate, the administrative state. Um, so um, they, they were very aggressive. And Dick Griffin, um, the general counsel, was very aggressive, um, especially in the joint employer issue. Um, and, of course, uh, Jennifer Bruzzo was, was his assistant. Um, I think that today uh, they are more aggressive, and it goes to, I think, uh, the Biden administration generally was way, way, way more prepared uh, to govern uh, than the Trump administration was. I had some insight into what happened with the transition going to President Trump and um, a lot of the people that were uh, suggested for different leadership positions were just ignored. Um, and there was a tremendous loss of time and energy. But that is not the case with respect to President Biden's administration. Um, they did a great job during the transition. Um, they uh, identified people who were not rookies. Uh, they put people into positions 
Uh, they had acting people before they can get to confirm folks, which is what happened to uh, General Counsel Abruzzo, for example. And General Counsel Abruzzo is part of the transition team overseeing the National Labor Relations Act, somebody with 25 years of experience with respect to the agency, who was the Associate General Counsel under Dick Griffin. These were not rookies. Right. And I think the fact that the uh, Biden administration was able to act that way gave them a tremendous advantage. Um, it's not playing out quite so well uh, for them at DOL, but we'll get to that in a second, uh, because you know everybody thinks they're going to come in and, and, and conquer Washington. Washington cannot be conquered. Um, uh, you know, it's, there's just there's just so many ways of getting um, different kinds of things into the wheels of quote unquote progress to slow things down. Um, you know, it's 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 just very 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 frustrating. And I saw that you know during the Trump years, and I see that now you know during the Biden years. Uh, but to go specifically to your question about <clears throat> the board. Um, General Counsel Bruso is absolutely committed to pushing the boundaries of the National Labor Relations Act absolutely as far as she can, um, and she knows how to do it. Um, she knows the agency. She knows the personnel. She knows how the agency operates. Um, uh, the, the memorandums that she issued to the field uh, within the first uh, few weeks or a couple of months of her tenure uh, were absolutely breathtaking. Um, and um, she's going to do it. And um, there was a piece out today by uh, uh, Tim Ryan at 360 where we were talking about the Army budget, and I think I said something. In fact, whether it's 250 or 300 or 350, uh, Jennifer Bruzzo is going to do everything that she can to remake the National Labor Relations Act. Right. Um, well, it's, it's interesting, and I, when I'm talking to companies or, well, even people you know, who are not involved in labor relations, the pendulum that swings so broadly every administration. And, you know, it's been, I think, five now that that I've been, administrations, that is, that I've been around with. Um, so it, it appears at the moment, at least, the PRO Act is stalled, um, hopefully stalled for a long time. And so a lot of what they're hoping for in the PRO Act, um, you mentioned Jennifer Bruzzo's memos, I, and I think you're, one of them is the August 12th memo that she outlined, I want to say it was like nine pages long of all the different policy things that she wanted to do. Right. Um, in many respects, there's not a large, um, there's not, it's hard for employers who are under this to understand that, you know, some of this stuff, they're not going to have a say in whatsoever. It's not even, you know, it's not a midterm election issue. It's it's coming through the administration, through the National Labor Relations Board, and they're going to get stuck with it, right? Well, I think so. I, I quipped that, um, um, at least right now, um, NLRB in Latin means employer loses. Um, it's going to be very <laughs> difficult to, um, uh, to overcome. Now, that's on the policy questions. I mean, <clears throat> board gets bad rap. Um, uh, whoever you know, happens to be leading it uh, in the sense that, you know, it's so partisan. But the vast majority of their cases are not partisan. You know, determining an 881 or an 883, um, you know, you call it as you see it. Um, and a lot of those decisions um, are done in a very bipartisan way. 
Um, it's the policy decisions that become uh, way more important and that get all the publicity. Um, and that's where I think, you know, you have these, these kinds of issues and these kinds of concerns. And I agree with you with respect to the flip-flop. Um, and I'm extraordinarily concerned about the flip-flop uh, because as a lawyer, um, one of the things that was drilled into my head in law school is that law serves a fundamental purpose of making sure that the regulated community understands the rules of the road. And once you understand those rules of the road, you can adopt a path forward. And when there are so many huge gyrations in changing the rules of the road so that a straight line becomes a detour, you can no longer establish principles for yourself to understand how you can act in a lawful fashion. And so what's really happening is that the very foundation that we're a country of laws is being undermined because we're a country of enormous gyrations based upon the political dynamics that elections really matter. That's a good point. Um, let me ask you real quickly, as I know we want to move on to independent contractors and the ABC test. Um, one of the one of the big things that seems to be coming out is the um, backdoor card check or the Joy Silk, the which came out of Miss Bruzo's memo. Um, do you see that coming, or is that going to get forestalled? Uh, Joy Silk, there's at least uh, yeah, it's very difficult to track the board because there's so many tentacles with the regions and you know issuance of complaints and what have you. Um, uh, I know of uh, one firm that has at least one Joy Silk case. Um, we have we have two. Um, I'm sure that there are others that are out there, um, but they're in the early stages with respect to the issuance of complaint or investigation as to whether or not complaints should issue. Um, you know, a lot of, well, some of those cases may get mooted uh, because the union may win the election. Um, you know, that happened in a situation, they had a Joyce Hill case in Chicago um, in the very early days of the uh, of, of Ms. Bruzzo's tenure, um, then you won the election. So I think that for her to accomplish her objective, she needs to have a lot of companies that are under investigation where complaints are issued, um, uh, alleging violations that would give rise to Joyce Silk so that the union would be recognized without the election based upon the cards. Um, because she needs to have a lot of cases in the pipeline in order to find the case that's going to lead to um, a union losing the election uh, and then alleging it was because of the employer's unlawful activities, which will ultimately get to the board. Um, and then the board, I think this majority board, you know, would rule probably in her favor. Um, that is a very torturous process. Um, and... Uh, you're right, it's not affected at all by the midterms. And frankly, it's not affected, at least initially, by the 2024 presidential elections because the way the board operates with respect to tenures, um, you know, there's always a holdover uh, with respect to how the board uh, majority turns. Um, now, Mr. Bruzzo will probably be treated the same way that Peter Robb was um, if a Republican were to win the White House. You know, she'd probably get fired during the inauguration speech, um, just like Peter Robb was. 
Um, so her tenure would expire. But that doesn't mean that the issue necessarily goes away. So that may be more weedy than your listeners would like. Um, but it just goes to show how difficult it is sometimes to change policy. Sometimes that's a good thing, and sometimes, depending upon your point of view, it's not a very good thing. Yeah, it's it's one that's um, been interesting to watch. And then, to your point, as a practitioner, it's you know trying to navigate <laughs> navigate through uncharted waters. At least since the nineteen forties, nineteen forty nine, I guess. But it seems like any the only thing that's predictable is unpredictability. Um, and the one thing that I um, do not like um, as a lawyer, and you know, today I I'm much more involved in you know law policy and you know public relations and strategic advice for clients, you know, from a workplace policy perspective. Um, but you know, I'm still a practitioner, and I tell the clients. Um, understand I'm not telling you what the law is. I'm telling you what the law is about to be. And right. that, that should not be necessarily what lawyers should do. It goes to the certainty of legal principles um, and to my you know, fundamentals of right and wrong that my mother, God bless her, you know, drilled into my head. Um, and now it's like, you know, I, I've got to be a prognosticator. Um, somebody asked me the other day how a judge in uh, California uh, ruled that Proposition 22 was unconstitutional. Um, and I said, there's only one principle that can explain it, magic. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I've worked with a lot of attorneys over the years, and I worked with one many years ago who said um, one of the first things that she learned in law school was the legal answer to a question is, it depends. Right. And right. so it, it seems like everything right now is it depends. Well, I think that um, uh, not to put too fine a point and move on and get more substantive. Um, we may be enjoying this conversation, but most of your listeners are probably saying, I've had enough of that. Um, but um, it always depends upon the facts. That's always been the case. Right. But now it depends upon who's in power. Right. So let's, let's move on to... Um, what I thought was would be a really fascinating subject with you, and that is the uh, independent contractor issue and the ABC test. And you're out on the West Coast in um, my native state, and that was, it seems, I think that was the vanguard of the ABC test, which is California. Where, where, do, where do things stand with the independent contractor status? I know... Um, AB5, which is the Assembly Bill 5 in California, had a catastrophic effect on independent contractors or freelancers out there. And then it was in the PRO Act, um, PRO Act's not going anywhere, and now the NLRB and so at the NLRB level, um, they'd asked for briefs on the definition of independent contractors versus employees and they're i think they've all been submitted right and now it's heading somewhere else or they're still sitting on it yeah the the ic is a big issue um it involves a larger uh, much larger segment of the workforce and continues to expand uh nobody really has a good accurate number um but there's at least 59 million freelancers out there and there's certainly an awful lot of people that are working from a gig perspective. Let's break it down this way. 
The ABC test had been around in a number of states for some period of time, but it had been used more in a workers' comp context or an unemployment context. There's an ABC test that's been around in Massachusetts for a while as well, although its interpretation has not been as expansive, at least up until now. We'll see what Ms. Healy does if she becomes governor, because we've certainly seen what she's done as attorney general, uh, which is to sue all the gig companies. Um, uh, but in California, um, it's, it's certainly been you know, a major, major issue uh, going to the very heart of the business um, the way the business actually operates. So it becomes a strategic issue and a fundamental issue you know, for the company. So back to the uh, PRO Act. There was a legislative effort in the PRO Act to incorporate California's ABC test as the law of the land. Uh, that would include you know, things such as penalties of fifty to $100,000 for misclassification, as well as personal liabilities on directors of officers if they guessed wrong as to who was and was not an independent contractor. The PRO Act is totally, completely stalled, and the PRO Act is not going to become law. I say that, but I don't say the PRO Act is dead because I'm mindful of the fact that no bad idea ever goes away in Washington, D.C. And you see aspects of the PRO Act in other pieces of legislation. We saw it in the Build Back Better program with the fines um, and some additional unfair labor practices and the director of officer liability. The Build Back Better is now dead and it never got to the parliamentarian because you never had to rule as to whether or not it was part and proper for budget reconciliation. Um, okay, that's fine, but now we have the Competes Act. Um, the, you know, the fundamentals of the Competes Act enabling us as a country to better compete with China um, gives my absolute full endorsement, um, including um, the, the money that's going to the semiconductor companies, even though um, that a number of them are very profitable. Um, but there are provisions in the uh, Competes Act uh, that would require card check and neutrality for solar companies. Um, and it's buried, you know, these things are 2,000 pages, nobody ever reads them. Certainly the people that vote for them, one way or the other, don't read them, that's for certain. Um, and so you really got to check this. So there are significant uh, issues going on now with the establishment of a conference committee in the Senate and the Senate stripping that out. So you see different pieces of the PRO Act that come up in other kinds of things. So we're always checking for that. Maybe more than, again, your listeners wanted to know. I feel somewhat confident um, that those provisions of the Competes Act will wind up getting stripped through reconciliation. So you're not going to have federal legislation. Um, we'll talk about you know, state legislation, I think, further in the conversation. Um, when you move, though, to um, uh, the board um, and looking what the board is doing on independent contractors, uh, the Atlantic Opera case is the vehicle um, that was selected in order to raise the question as to whether or not uh, the board wanted to redo the independent contractors test that was established um, under the uh, chairmanship of, of John Ring, um, who, of course, is still on the board. Um, amicus briefs were filed. They were submitted. We submitted one um, for CDW, um, and there were tons of briefs filed, I think close to 40, that set forth the different approaches 
Um, and I fully expect that the board in its three to two decision um, uh, with members McFerrin, Wilcox, and Prouty in the majority um, and members Ringan, Kaplan in the minority uh, will come down with a decision that will make it much easier to find an independent contractor uh, to be an employee. Um, in addition, um, there's a case called uh, Bilox um, that had been established where um, there was an issue as to whether or not um, if I, as the employer, told you that you were an independent contractor, whether that could be um, a, uh, an unfair labor practice in and of itself. Uh, because it somehow discouraged you since I told you you were an IC, the theory goes that you don't think you're an employee and therefore you won't engage in Section 7 activity because you don't think you have the right to engage in Section 7 activity, ignoring the fact that there's not a person in the world who understands what it is that I just said. But we have this fiction that all of the employees understand, oh my God, I'm an independent contractor. I can't engage in protecting certain activity under Section 7. Come on, cut me a freaking break. Um, but we now have a case that just uh, started to arise the other day um, in, uh, in Los Angeles, coming out of region, I think, 21. I could be wrong on that. That raises this, this issue. Um, and this will get uh, litigated, I think, to the board. And it raises some real strong fundamental First Amendment concerns. Um, as to whether or not uh, it prohibits speech where I, the employer in good faith, say that you're an independent contractor. How can anybody know whether you're an independent contractor or not? Under what law? Under what jurisdiction? State, federal, regulatory, legislative? And somehow I'm wrong because somebody, 2020 hindsight, says that you're an employee and therefore I have violated your rights and so I'm not entitled to speak? You talk about invasion of speech. That's pretty darn important. And if we start infringing on our speech rights in that way, we had a much more serious problem than labor issues. So this is an enormously important issue. And that's going to percolate up to the board. Um, and that could be a case that could go all the way to the Supremes. It might take seven years or eight years to get there. But that's a big deal. You got to sometimes distinguish between labor policy um, and issues of more fundamental importance. And First Amendment free speech rights is certainly one. Right. Um, so in the Atlanta Opera case, the uh, walk us through the the timeline of this. So if they come out in you know a month or six months and they say, okay, these folks are in are not independent contractors; they're employees, therefore able to unionize. Um, the employer in that case could appeal it to the circuit courts, right? Not, no, it's much more complicated. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this as quickly as I can because it's mm -hmm. painful. Um, first, there would have to be an election because now the board said they're employees, which is the foregone conclusion. So the hairdressers and the, the makeup artists and the people who put the wigs on, they're now employees, so they have the right to vote. Then they vote. What if they vote against the, vote against the union? Well, there's no case um, because the employer won the election. So from that perspective, there's nothing to appeal. So what if there's a vote um, and the union wins the election? Now the employer can appeal, but only after they refuse to bargain. Because as you know, you can't appeal a representation case. You can only appeal an unfair labor practice case. Um, so the union has to get certified. The employer has to refuse to bargain. Um, and then the employer has to file an appeal into the circuit courts. That assumes 
that this little nonprofit has the money to do so. That assumes that this little nonprofit wants to uh, do this kind of effort, or maybe this little nonprofit decides that they're going to bargain with the union and make a deal. So um, it's a much more complicated situation to see whether or not this is going to get into the courts. Um, I think that um, the board is counting on the fact that they're going to come down with a decision. They're going to have broad statements as to how you determine an independent contractor. Um, they're going to assume that that's the law uh, because no circuit court um, is able to tell the board, according to the board, that you're wrong. You've got to wait to the Supreme Court to do it. Um, and once they have that in hand, then I think Bruzo will go crazy with additional unfair labor practices against many other companies that use the IC model. Um, and I think that you will use uh, this issue that we talked about, the Vilox issue, of calling them independent contractors and having them sign agreements that they're independent contractors as additional violations. And I think she's going to blow up the entire independent contractor model um, uh, while she's the general counsel of the board. Okay, so um, let me let me ask you a basic question on this. The, the Atlanta Opera case, if assuming they do rule that they are employees, is it that they will be coming out with the ABC test that you have in AB5? Is that the... I don't think so, because the um, the ABC test is a legislative test. It's clear that the board has to make its determination based upon you know common law principles and the restatement. Um, so they can't, in my view, <clears throat> adopt the ABC test, for example, that was in the PRO Act, as, as, their, as their test. Um, if they do... Uh, it makes it much easier to ultimately reverse the board um, because they don't have the power to legislate in that way. I think what they will do is they will come up with a test that they deem to be under common law that gets them as close to an ABC test as they can without calling it an ABC test. Okay, Remember, we're a country of messaging, not a fact. Yeah, it is. Um, I think the big concern with it is the B part of the ABC test. That's where I think in California everybody got... I saw a quote, and I'll just use the quote. They got, they fell under the buzzsaw with the B part of the ABC test. It's very, it's very, it's very difficult. And you know, again, we've already been weedy enough for your listeners, and I appreciate if they're still listening. Um, uh, but yeah, it's very, very difficult um, to overcome, you know, the ABC test, and that was the reason for Prop Twenty Two. Um, it won um, resoundingly with 58% of the vote. I think only four counties voted against it. Um, There's tremendous support for it. Um, there's criticism because so much money was spent during the initiative process, but that's the way it works. Um, and uh, now we have a judge in California who's ruled uh, that Prop 22 was unconstitutional based upon that legal principle that I mentioned before, magic. Um, that's now obviously being appealed. Um, and sometime in, uh, I think those briefs are due sometime in April, um, sometime this year, we will get a decision from a court of appeals in California as to whether or not um, the uh, superior judge uh, was correct in finding that Prop 22 is unconstitutional. When we get that decision, undoubtedly, um, whoever loses is going to appeal. Uh, that'll get us to the California Supreme Court. And sometime next year, California Supreme Court will issue their ruling. Well, the California Supreme Court is the one that got us started 
uh, on the whole ABC test, because in my view, with all due respect to the California Supreme Court, I think they act like a legislator and not a court, um, because they make law um, and don't interpret law. They would violently disagree with what I say, but that's my view. I have the First Amendment right as far as I know to say it. Um, <laughs> at least today so, you do. <laughs> uh, at least today I do. So I'm not, um, I'm not at all confident um, that the California Supreme Court uh, will rule in a way uh, that at least I think the law would direct them um, and to say that the judge's ruling is incorrect. So if Prop 22 is declared to be unconstitutional, that has enormous implications, not only for California, but has enormous implications for Massachusetts that will vote on Prop 22 this November. So we should probably back up just a little bit on what is Prop 22. That was the uh, ballot it initiative. It was the carve-out. That was the ballot initiative. That was the carve-out uh, for the DNCs, the uh, delivery network companies, and the TNCs, uh, the driver network companies, transportation network companies, um, that gave them um, the ability to uh, provide a higher minimum wage and a 25% certain benefits and do certain other things um, as an exclusion uh, from AB5. I think it's very, very important to note um, that while um, those companies were at least initially successful, um, depending upon the outcome of this litigation, uh, to get themselves a carve-out, there are tons and tons and tons of freelancers um, that work in California that have seen their businesses destroyed um, as a result of the ABC test. Yeah, the, the example I use all the time is, um, and it is even before AB5 was implemented fully, it was uh, Vox Media canceling the agreements with, I think, 300 writers. That's correct. And the, the, the freelancers, um, they filed a brief, um, Kim Caven and a bunch of others um, filed a brief um, in the Atlantic Opera case. Um, um, you know, they're not lawyers, they're, but they, it's a great policy brief that explains the implications of what happens with these crazy tests, you know, to 59 million freelancers. Um, and they are um, alert, alert. Um, they are filing a brief not exactly the same group, but there's a case going to the United States Supreme Court, um, and there's a cert petition that gives rise to the issue as to whether or not AB5 in California is constitutional as it applies to the uh, freelance writers. Um, and they're filing a brief um, uh, with the court, I think Thursday or Friday of this week, that uh, we gave them some pro bono help on, um, uh, just, just really helping them file it. We had virtually nothing to do with the writing of the brief other than giving some direction as to what rules to follow. Um, so I hope the court looks at that too. And the freelancers tend to get overlooked um, in this issue uh, because independent contractor is not just about gig. Independent contractor has been around for centuries. Um, and it was you know, a preferred way of, of functioning in the workplace until Henry Ford came around um, and we took everybody out of the, uh, um, out of the fields and put them into factories. Um, and these freelancers, uh, their story is not being told adequately at all. Um, they are the true victims of what's happening here with the ABC test. Right. I, I had uh, Ms. Caven and, and another freelancer, uh, Lisa Rothstein, on one of the episodes a few weeks ago. And I, I mentioned, and I'll say it again, I've read a lot of briefs, um, but as this one was not written by attorneys, it was a very enjoyable brief to read. 
It was well, so well written. With, I, I tell you, it was. I, they sent it to me, and I looked at it in the the uh, uh, the, the amicus brief they filed. I was absolutely uh, stunned um, at its persuasiveness, um, and uh, uh, I didn't suggest that they change a word. I don't think. Um, uh, certainly, nothing of any of any substance. Um, and I said to myself, well, you know, Dopey, um, they are freelance writers. So what do you expect? Right. Yeah, it was, it was just, it was so well, it was just a great read. It was like his history it's a, and... It's, it's, yeah. a, it's a great read. And I, I did encourage them, I admit. Um, I did encourage them to add that voice. I mean, they operated totally, completely independent. Um, I just gave them some technical advice as to how to file an amicus brief. It's all their work product. Um, but they did a great job. So, so the cert that's going to the Supreme Court is not, um, it has nothing to do with Atlanta Opera. This is that. That has opera. nothing to do with Atlanta yeah. Opera. That's the 35 uh, uh, limitation, you know, more than, you can't write more than 35 stories or something a year, something like that. Or maybe they increased it to 50. I don't remember the details, but there's a specific nuance in California um, under AB5 that they are, that they are challenging uh, through litigation to the Supreme Court. And so AB5 was enacted when? Three or four years ago? Uh, uh, and 2020, right? Right, and we're just getting, well, okay, so two years ago, uh, but we're just getting to the Supreme now, and they're not there. This is a cert petition urging the court to take the case, so we'll see, you know, we'll see what the court does. Um, again, it, there's there's just so many aspects to the independent contractor. You know, are you talking about legislation? Are you talking about the board? We haven't even gotten to DOL. Um, you know, are you talking about the states? Are you talking about the legislation in the states? Are you talking about the litigation in the states? It's very, very, very complex. So um, you just mentioned the DOL. What is going on with the DOL and this whole issue? Well, the DOL, you know, they got a, uh, they got a, they got a surprise, um, uh, and they ran up against my partner and my co-chair, Maury Baskin, um, who brought the lawsuit um, challenging um, the current administration's effort to withdraw um, the uh, previous administration's effort to come up with an independent contractor rule to give certainty and clarify um, the DOL test on independent contractor uh, for purpose of the FLSA and other reasons, um, uh, not NLRB, FLSA, it's a different law. Um, uh, but there was all kinds of, there's all kinds of issues with different interpretations under the FLSA of an independent contractor in the circuit courts. So you would have a company that was operating in two circuits. In one circuit, the worker is an independent contractor, and the other is an employee. I mean, it was absolute insanity. You know, you talked about judicial certainty of laws. So what the uh, Trump DOL did is they came up with a rule that said, here's the way we're going to approach it. Naturally, the new administration came in and withdrew it. They did a bunch of other things. And we brought this lawsuit on behalf of the coalition, um, CWI Coalition for Workforce Innovation and others, um, and challenging uh, what the uh, current DOL did. And the judge was a week ago um, uh, in Texas, federal judge uh, ruled on our behalf, on behalf of our clients, uh, finding that what the Biden administration attempted to do was drawing the rule was absolutely improper under the Administrative Procedure Act. Um, and uh, as a result, uh, the Trump rule went into effect retroactively to March 8 of 
2021, I think. Um, um, so um, that's a huge setback for um, uh, the current DOL um, and obviously a, a disappointment for them. So, you know, what's next? Uh, well, we're waiting to see whether or not uh, DOL will appeal that uh, up into the Fifth Circuit or not. Um, it's not clear as to whether they will or not. Uh, they may appeal it. Um, we will obviously um, uh, defend the position of the district judge. Um, it's a case that could go to the Supremes. I don't think DOL wants it to go to the Supremes because we also have issues in there about Chevron deference and other sorts of things that they probably don't want the Supreme Court to deal with. Um, and I think that they will probably go with an NPRM on rulemaking in order to try to reverse uh, what the Trump group was, which has now been made enormously more difficult for them as a result of the judge's decision. Um, and it just sort of underscores that when you, even though you have very good people that are very knowledgeable um, that come in with a new administration and try to do things, um, if there's a will to contest that, um, you can very quickly find that you're at a big roadblock. Um, and um, we created a big roadblock for them. Um, and frankly, we're proud of the decision because we think the judge got it exactly right. And it goes to the certainty again. Just because a new administration comes in doesn't give you the right to just say, ha, here's a new rule. Under the Administration Procedure Act, you're supposed to follow the law. And you're supposed to say why you need a new rule. They didn't do that. So is it, um, is it likely or possible that they're going to come back out with uh, another change and do it properly this time? And if they do, how long does that take? Oh, we suspect forever. Um, uh, well, first, they, they have a problem because they don't have leadership in the wage and hour because they don't have David Wilde. Uh, you know, people are policy. David Wiles' um, appointment has not gone through. Um, you know, it's hanging on the ledge, um, and that ledge is called Mansion and Cinema. Um, and uh, uh, so they don't have leadership, although the acting person um, is certainly extremely knowledgeable and very competent. Um, but right now, uh, DOL is engaged with a heat rule from their OSHA group. They've got the overtime rule. They've got the Davis-Bacon rule. They're overwhelmed with rules. Um, we, you know, expect that they're going to do something um, on independent contractor, but does that mean they delay the overtime rule, do the independent contractor rule? They really have the bandwidth to do it all. And then it's going to take time because they have to issue an NPRM. It takes time to issue an NPRM. The judge's decision sets boundaries as to what they're going to have to show in order to be able to justify the change in the rule. Since the rule never went into effect, um, because now it is in effect, there's very little uh, law to, to challenge as to why the Trump rule was wrong. This is going to be an enormous problem. Um, and if they do try to do this, there will be another long protracted comment period. There'll be a final rule and there will undoubtedly be litigation that will challenge that rule. All of this could be impacted a little bit by the midterm elections as a result of oversight that would take place. And ultimately, you know, this would be impacted by the results of the 2024 presidential election. Right. Everything's politics. So, what a shame. What a shame. Yeah. Um, I'm cognizant of your time, and I know you've, you're going to run up against a window in a few minutes. Um, let me ask you a couple quick questions. Um, first one is just on the independent contractor, because I, I was ruminating about this uh, about a week ago. If 
an ABC test becomes the law of the land, so to speak, or even if it's not a full-blown ABC test, if it becomes part of the landscape, would not that apply to unions as well for their independent contractors as employers? Well, sure it would. Um, I mean, um, unless there's a specific carve-out, unions are employers just like other people are. Um, And um, uh, you raise a good point. Um, uh, The one that you didn't ask about, you probably don't have time for, is the joint employer rule. Um, So when the board issues the joint employer rule, um, I'm firmly convinced um, that a local um, and an international um, in almost all instances, are joint employers uh, because there's so much control of the international, of the local. And yes. you know, people say, oh, the courts don't take well. You know, that's an issue that's going to get litigated. Okay, so that, uh, I've got to ask you this, because this happened back under the Obama administration when Craig Becker went on to the labor board. He, right. was, he said he would um, recuse yeah, himself. Right, right. Right, he was going to, yep. And so there's a local SEIU or SEIU local um, and he would not recuse himself because Correct. he said he was part of the international. Correct. But the and, case never got appealed. Right. Because it was very smart. Um, you come out with your statement as to why I'm not recusing in a case where the employer, in this case, NRTW, National Right to Work, won. So there's nothing to appeal. So his, his several pages of explaining why the local and the international have nothing to do with one another, uh, which is absolute nonsense. Um, I mean, after all, the, the international is taking about a third of the money that the local collects and uses it for its own purposes, for heaven's sakes. And the Constitution of every union states that they supersede, you know, all locals. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I'm always amazed. You look at a franchise agreement, for example, and you look at an international's constitution, there's absolutely no question that the international is a joint employer of the local. Uh, there's no question that because there's no control between the uh, franchise or in the franchisee because of only brand identification and brand integrity, that there is no joint employer. But the franchise community's got all the problems and the unions have none. Right. Yeah. And that's, um, yeah. So that's going to be interesting. It's one of those things, be careful what you ask for is you just might get it. That's and, correct. You just might get it. Um, so real quickly, and I know you've got to wrap up, what advice would you give employers right now? And I don't mean legal advice, just practical advice as all this stuff is shifting. Um, what are the top three things that employers should be doing? Um, well, you know, you, 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 you need to have a very good preventive labor relations program. And I tell everybody, um, your destiny is in your own control. Um, and I've encouraged employers for almost 50 years uh, not to be union-free. Uh, my father was a union guy. I saw the benefits of unionization. I saw, you know, the, the deficits um, during strikes that my father was on of union representation. The ideal is to be issue-free, not union-free. Um, and um, I think one of the things that we're seeing is that employees are demanding a much more effective voice in the workplace. And I think the one thing that I would do if I was an employer is I would take a look at every single voice mechanism I had, um, and I would evaluate its effectiveness. And I would challenge every single employer that when you hire a first-line supervisor, you probably tell them all about FMLA leave and sex harassment and all of these other things, um, and you should. But do you select people 
that have empathy and the willingness to listen to employees. Because as far as I'm concerned, that's the number one job of a first-line supervisor. And I know of very few companies who do that. Um, that, to me, is a huge vulnerability. Um, I also think that employers need to begin effectively communicating their issue-free philosophy and what they do for their employees well in advance of any kind of problems. Because if you bring the cavalry in at the last minute, the cavalry ain't going to have very much credibility. Um, those are things that I think are really critically important. Um, I also think that you need to get involved in the process. It's the old sort, if you're not at the table, they're going to eat you, um, or something to that effect. Um, if you think that you're too small, or you don't want to be involved in government relations, um, I'm sorry, you're incorrect. Um, they have a direct impact on the way you're running your business. Um, but the overarching thing that I would say that we haven't touched on is there is a much more serious problem. Um, we have a workforce that is not fit for the 21st century. Uh, we have a workforce that's one-fifth gone. We have a workforce with about 11 million jobs opening. Um, the number one issue uh, that people talk to me about has absolutely nothing to do with anything that we've talked about for the last hour. They say the same thing. How can I find people? And how can I find people that can do work that I've got that people have to do? That's the number one issue in the American workforce today. Um, and you know, we've been talking through my Emma Coalition, named after my granddaughter, about establishing the 21st century workforce now for almost a decade. Um, and uh, we've been largely uh, unsuccessful, although we're working on this um, uh, in different ways that I really can't get into right now. But um, we got to have a 21st century workforce. We need to understand the skill gap. Uh, we need to have the accurate information to understand the jobs that are going away, the skills that are going away, and the skills that are needed. And then we need to align all of our workforce uh, training, which is in the billions of dollars, and make sure that we have a 21st century workforce. Because if we don't have a 21st century workforce, then the 21st is not going to be the next American century. And the reason why I keep doing what I'm doing, what I'm doing is because of that issue, uh, because I'm not going to go down um, and take the long dirt nap, uh, thinking that uh, the 21st is China slash Russia's century. Uh, that is unacceptable to me. That, to me, is the number one issue um, that we have from a workforce standpoint. Um, and employers need to engage in this. And guess what, folks? It's bipartisan. That's true. You know, one of the, uh, on that note, we should probably wrap up, because I know you're up on the clock. Um, that brings in a whole bunch of other issues and, and the demographic shifts that we have going on with all the baby boomers retiring and just not enough people coming into the workforce. But There's many issues that tie yeah. into that. Um, there's immigration issues. It's a complex issue. Maybe yeah. we'll talk about it some other day. Yeah. Um, but thank you very much, uh, Peter, for having me. And, you know, for the two people that are still listening, uh, thank you for hanging in there. I, I find our listeners like the wonkiness. So I, I see the, the numbers go up when I have wonky discussions. But Mr. Oh Latino, God. it was an I, I honor. Don't, I don't know if I want huge, I don't know if I want huge listenership or, or little <laughs> listenership. I, I, I didn't want to be wonky. I wanted to be stimulated. It was both. <laughs> So thank you so much for coming on to Labor Relations Radio, and it was an honor having you. Uh, you're very kind, Peter. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have thank a great you. day. You too. Bye. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. 
That was Michael Latito with Littler Mendelssohn's Workplace Policy Institute. And if you notice during uh, our conversation, he used the term NPRM on several occasions. And so I thought it'd be helpful to explain that. That is a notice of proposed rulemaking. And so it's issued uh, whenever an independent agency of the U.S. government wishes to add, remove, or change a rule or regulation. In any case, I'm going to leave some links to Mr. Latito's bio, as well as the Workplace Policy Institute, as well as the Emma Coalition and some of Mr. Latito's writings. And that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. If you want to reach out to us, you can leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Uh, Reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report, that's at Workplace RPT, or give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. That's 1-888-668-6466. Thanks for listening. Radio.